podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Well, folks, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, we start a special series, or we have been doing a special series, excuse me, about the 737 MAX. Uh, although this is a general aviation podcast, we feel this is a really important topic, which all aviators can learn from. Uh, joining me today will be Ben Bowman and Justin Ash. But before we begin, a couple words from our sponsor. Uh, don't forget our sponsor is AviationCareersPodcast.com, and we have the scholarships guide there. You can get a free scholarship scholarships through the Pay It Forward campaign. Really easy to find out, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash scholarships. Also, the Pay It Forward campaign, what is that? You can get a free scholarships guide for a year. Your access, we update it every month, and uh, there's over, we're cl- coming close on $100 million of scholarships in that guide. Really exciting. We're adding new categories for everybody, so I can't wait to see more and more people get their certificates by using the scholarships guide. Really, really excited about that. So uh, anyway, on to the show and uh, the cruise flight. Now entering cruise flight. So today's topic, we're in episode four, and we're with Ben Bowman and Justin Ash. Hey, guys, welcome back to the podcast to talk about the 737 MAX. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for having me back. And guys, we, uh, we're taking this from a, a, a different perspective. We've gone over all the information about the 737 MAX and the accidents that have transpired in the past. And what I'd like people to do is, if you haven't heard part one, two, and three, go take a look, you know, discover what the, the new 737 MAX is all about, uh, the MCAS system, etc. Also, we go into a discussion of the different accidents that have happened, uh, the Ethiopian, the Line Air, all those different accidents and what, what, what transpired there. And there's some really detailed analysis. Uh, we won't go into that too much right now, but uh, we will uh, we do want to expand on that to figure out what went wrong. So if you're coming up on this, I really highly recommend you go back and listen to those two episodes. Uh, you'll, you'll glean a lot more information if you do that. So anyway, let's get started. Uh, we were, you know, Ben has quite a bit of experience with the 737 and the 737 MAX, and both through uh, experience, but primarily through a lot of research. And it's really been interesting. So uh, what we've been discussing here, one of the things that we want to do now is moving forward, figure out, you know, what we can do, but first we have to figure out what went wrong. So let's go to that point. So Ben, let's start there. The 737 MAX and the accidents, what went wrong? Well, so, you know, in the first couple uh, episodes, we talked about uh, how, you know, what exactly went wrong with the flights. We did kind of a timeline breakdown of those flights. Uh, We glossed over a couple details just to uh, keep our situational awareness in there. But there are a couple uh, sort of glaring uh, issues and points of information and interest that, uh, you know, I really want to dig deeper into today. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of talk in the media, you know, what went wrong with this whole thing is there's issues with Boeing, there's issues with training, there's issues with equipment. 
Um, and so to, to kind of break down those things, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem uh, with the MCAS system is that it was unknown uh, and not really fully developed uh, from a certification standpoint. Um, one of the biggest issues that we sort of discussed is that this is a failure uh, of a system that not only were we not trained on uh, you know, th even the existence of the system, but also uh, there were some indications that weren't actually uh, properly packaged, if you if you will. Uh, so, you know, one of the biggest issues is, uh, you know, had we known that there was an AOA, an angle of attack, disagree. Um, you know, this happened on both of the accident flights where there was a disagree with the angle of attack. That was a uh, a warning enunciator that was supposed to be included with the, the aircraft, but uh, because of subcontracting issues, it actually wasn't. It was mistakenly packaged with a, a, a purchased option um, rather than just to be a, a standard safety option. Uh, so that sort of, um, it created a lot of issues uh, uh, or it highlights a lot of issues, not just with the certification side of things, uh, but also with uh, the, the maintenance and training side of things. You know, one of the questions though I have uh, as far as that's concerned, just to, to back up a little bit, uh, it might help to, you know, a little history on this. The MCAS system that we're talking about that uh, basically engaged, I guess you could say, was activated is something that's dependent on the one AOA. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Yeah, it's dependent on so any AOA, not necessarily one, but uh, it's it's dependent on just any AOA. Uh, so if there's a failure in one of those veins, then the, the system won't trigger. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So that's really important to, to know that that, and that was not, is that a better way to say that it just wasn't part of the package or they didn't package it properly? I'm, I'm trying to figure out, get a little more color on that. It, it wasn't packaged properly. So if you imagine buying a car and you're supposed to get your, uh, you know, your, your automatic collision avoidance braking, uh, when you buy the performance package or safety package or what, what have you. Um, and then it just wasn't included. Somebody who was making the, the spreadsheets for the sales brochure accidentally uh, included the AOA disagree. Uh, so basically the indication that says one of the AOA veins has failed, they basically accidentally included it in a higher package, purchased package. In a higher purchase, but right, right, that makes sense. So, uh, as far as that's concerned, why would that have happened? So, I kind of want to back into that a little bit. As far as certification is done, I'm, uh, I think a lot of folks don't realize how that whole process comes about. So, the certification process, a lot of th folks I think assume is done primarily through the FAA in in our minds. If I'm just looking at this, not as a pilot, but somebody in the watching the news. But in reality, they have to rely heavily on the manufacturer, correct? They do. And, and there's a lot of uh, very good reasons for that. Uh, and one of, the, one of the main issues is simply staffing. Uh, you know, a company like Boeing uh, or Airbus uh, have tens of thousands of employees, tens of thousands of engineers, all who are uh, working on a singular task. You know, they have a 737 MAX development 
team that only does that. Uh, whereas the FAA, even for a large company like Boeing or uh, Airbus or Embraer or Bombardier, might only have 100 people or 50 people or realistically even less than that. And uh, just due to the nature of the FAA, uh, there's 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 more moving around uh, within the FAA and positions with within the FAA. So uh, if you think about it, somebody who works at Boeing, their career is Boeing, and they you know start out as an intern and they go to a junior designer and then engineer, etc. And but there it's all progression within Boeing and Boeing is only ever making uh, or designing essentially one airplane at a time uh, just because the cost. And that's not the case with the FAA because their career is with the FAA. And so they may start out as a, uh, a, uh, you know, a safety inspector, and then they move up to a, a, a POI, a principal operating inspector, assistant POI for an airline. And then the next pay grade up or the next career step up for them is to oversee a bigger airline or a manufacturer or going to Washington. And so they jump around a lot more. So generally, in my experience, um, you know, the, the tenure of an FAA uh, inspector or employee within uh, one organization is relatively short uh, in, in you know, less than a decade, maybe five years if you're uh, pretty happy with them um, or they're pretty happy with their position with you. And so it just takes, it would take a lot more employees uh, for the FAA to actually uh, do the oversight that a lot of people have called for. Uh, you know, you'd have to increase by thousands of employees just for a certain airline uh, or for a certain uh, uh, or for a certain uh, manufacturer. And so that's, and it's just not feasible uh, to get that subject matter expertise. Right. And so also that, uh, and that's right there at the manufacturer. So the, having that subject matter as expert on in-house is, is definitely good. And it, it definitely is something that, you know, they have years and years as opposed to somebody at the FAA, like you said, is moving on that type of thing. Uh, so how about other things that we have to kind of look at as far as, you know, other things that could go wrong within that whole process? Well, you know, one of the things that we talked about was the subcontracting. So you have, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the maintenance issues on this and the, the accidents are interesting because one accident, it was a failure of the vein during flight. We think it hit something. The other one, it was a replaced AOA vein, but it was installed incorrectly. Um, it was, it, they followed, the mechanic followed one of two approved uh, procedures and it was later determined that the procedure that they actually followed uh, was allowed for the uh, AOA vein basically to be misaligned from the get-go. Uh, you know, I won't go into crazy details with, uh, you know, the gears within the actual vein itself, but the basically it allowed for a bias to be introduced into the, uh, into the failed vein. So 
then we still have have this uh, indicated airspeed. We have a, a disagree, right? AOA disagree and indicated airspeed disagree because of the AOA. Uh, and those type of things lead to something else that's really important in this whole equation, and that's us. It's the pilots, correct? It does. And so, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the AOA vein failed. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily really matter how. Uh, and we've talked about uh, in other podcasts about the uh, the training issues. You know, we basically weren't told about the MCAS system. We uh, were trained on the Max using uh, an iPad program for most airlines. Some did uh, in-person courses, which are basically just, uh, you know, the iPad program with somebody talking over it. Uh, and, you know, but the, the real issues, too, were... Uh, ultimately crew experience issues once dealing with an unknown. Uh, you know, this was an unknown because we weren't told about it, failure. So at that point, we're relying on the pilots to use their experience uh, in determining what the problem is and what to do about it. And that experience is done is comes about through training and some training and experience is done through a computer or say an iPad, that type of thing. But also some is through the simulator. So when do we when do we actually do that? When do we go from the computer training to when we are required to do some type of flight training? Well, I would say uh, yes, there there is training done through computer or through classroom or through simulator or through operational experience. Uh, and I think that one really is the big issue. Uh, it's the operational experience of the pilots. Uh, you know, as airline pilots, we, we all go through training, but we can't possibly go through every scenario, every single time that we go through our annual or biannual tr uh, training. And so, uh, you know, you touch a bunch of big ones, some minor ones that we don't necessarily think about. And then you go on to next year where you touch a couple other big ones and then you go on to minor ones and you try to, you have this program where uh, you're continuously sort of training for these, uh, that issues that may come up and you try to emphasize the bigger ones. And what we rely on in between is making sure uh, that we have a, a good breadth of experience to draw from. Uh, and that's how we'd necessarily determine uh, that the airplane is behaving differently, that we don't necessarily, oh, I, I remember we got trained on this four years ago. It's not necessarily that. It's that you're you're sitting there with this this background and this experience of flying the airplane and, uh, and, and, and various different failure scenarios that you're able to draw from. So that experience and training, let's dive into these accidents and the incidents here with the 737 MAX. Um, what are some of the different uh, issues that we've seen with the crews possibly and also some other issues within that accident where the, there's all these different crew issues that we're talking about that maybe experience, maybe training would have helped? Yeah, so uh, yeah, there, are, there are essentially two to three uh, bullet points on the on, on the issues with the, the crew training and experience. Um, the, the first one is, I guess, simple, is that they just didn't really have a whole lot of experience other than the current job that they were in. Uh, in most parts of the world, uh, airline training is very expensive. Uh, and 
uh, that cost is borne usually by both the individual and uh, in part by the airline. And so uh, in, in a lot of parts in the world, you see people go into a cadet type program. They get the bare minimum of hour, a number of hours before they immediately get start uh, or get put into uh, the airline environment, so they can start creating revenue for both themselves and the airline. Um, and that's it's a great setup in terms of reducing cost, but the problem is it means that you really only know one thing. Uh, you've been with the same airline. Uh, usually these have pretty long uh, contracts that you have to sign out uh, with that airline. So you might be locked into that airline for 10, 15 years uh, to, in order to pay off that loan. So you don't get a whole lot of different perspectives. Uh, the second point with that is, uh, so you have, you have people going into the cockpit with two, 300 hours, if that, uh, into the cockpit of an airliner not a whole lot of experience. So the second point of that is because of that, there's a, a, an increased reliance on automation and checklist usage uh, and less emphasis on experience. And basically what that means is in a lot of parts of the world, you take off, you immediately turn on the autopilot, because you don't have a whole lot of experience to do anything else. And then if you see a light come on, you run the checklist for that light. There's not a whole lot of, uh, of troubleshooting that goes on. Uh, and while too much troubleshooting can be a bad thing, a basic level of troubleshooting is definitely good. So when you're looking at this from the perspective of an airline, it makes sense cost-wise, but also uh, in these cases, possibly there's the factor that we may not have as much experience as pilots because of this fact that they have these type of training programs. There is also the argument that uh, a lot of these folks are paired with very experienced people in the cockpit and the captains are fairly experienced, but uh, but having a wide, vast uh, knowledge actually does help in different arenas. And so I, I do take that point uh, to heart, that's for sure. Oh, of course, and and actually, you know, so so we see in these accidents, uh, you know, they had thousands and thousands of hours. The captains did, and um, and and so we sort of say, well, you know, how does somebody with eight, ten, whatever thousand hours uh, have have this issue? You'd think that they have a lot of experience, but it sort of goes back to what I talked about with these contracts: is that you're you're locked into an airline for a long time. So generally, what happens is you. Uh, stay for a while uh, as a first officer, and then you upgrade uh, to uh, a wide body or a larger airplane generally. Um, we saw this with the, uh, the captain on Ethiopian is, uh, you know, started as a first officer on the 737, the lowest paying airframe, then upgraded the 767, the 777, et cetera, uh, as a first officer because it pays better. And then eventually after eight, nine, 10 years, that person, uh, the, the captain now will go to the, back to the 737 in order to become a captain. And so it seems, oh, this person has seven, 8,000 hours. That's great. But really, it's been eight years since they had or seven years since they had any real experience on the 737. And they're relatively new captains in general. And that leads us into the, the third point, which is the CRM, uh, the crew resource management uh, issues. And that's sort of where this mentality from the airline of, you know, put on the automation, 
take off, do the checklists, really bleeds through. And you see, uh, it, and it bleeds through to the to the captain, essentially, that mentality, that, that culture, uh, because that's what they expect to see out of their first officers. And when their first officer does anything but that, it creates a CRM issue. Uh, and so we saw those issues during uh, both of these accidents where the captain was calling for checklists uh, or was not really uh, enunciating his his desires and uh, wishes correctly or clearly to the first officer. And that's just because there's not a whole lot of experience of having to deal with CRM there. So if we look back, though, these people were put through training, though, weren't they, with CRM, et cetera, in their process, I'm assuming. They were, um, and there were actually notes about uh, CRM issues uh, in, in most of these pilots' training records. But in the end, you know, we have to – how do you judge a person's CRM throughout the year based off of a two- to four-hour simulator session? The guy could be having a bad day. The lady could be – having to have a 4 a.m. sim session and they usually fly nights. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough to judge somebody in one day. So basically you see the problem, you try to correct it, but, uh, or you, you issue some, some training on CRM that day. And then, uh, ultimately you move on. So we had some crew issues, CRM issues, also over-reliance on automation, which I think we're starting to get away from. We'll talk about, about that later. Uh, anything else from the crew issue standpoint? Uh, or is there anything else we need to talk about as far as uh, the next item? Well, you know, these, these crew issues really sort of flow into the next issue, uh, which is about these checklists. Um, you know, when you're trained, read the checklist, based off of whatever light you're seeing. Uh, eventually, you do end up having a situation where the light doesn't come on. And that actually happened during this because there was no AOA disagree uh, light due to the, the uh, error in the packaging of them. And so, uh, you know, these crews started to try to figure out what was going on. Uh, the crew of the, the flight that did not crash um, before uh, Lion Air 610 uh, actually did diagnose the problem correctly and they were able to uh, essentially fix it well enough in order to continue on. And, uh, but, you know, I said that this is a CRM issue, a crew resource management issue, and that's because you can imagine the frustration when you're trying to diagnose a problem and you're calling for a checklist and maybe the, the first officer isn't reading back the correct checklist or the, the information that you're getting from the checklist isn't necessarily useful because it's not the problem that's going on. And once you start getting frustrated, we've all seen you sort of just, you, you start folding inwards on yourself and getting frustrated with the person you're flying with, with the airline, with the, the checklist, with the airplane, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, that, that was a real uh, problem. And, uh, you know, the other issue here, too, is this fixation uh, that they had uh, because they had been reported a problem in the previous flight of this airspeed disagree. And so they were trying to diagnose this one problem when it wasn't really the issue. But, you know, fixation can also be a pretty powerful uh uh, distractor, which again, then just kind of deteriorates your crew resource management. 
having the checklists and the QRHs and, and all these that, that deal with different messages that we get, warnings uh, and cautions, those are great. But a lot of times those are gleaned from experience. Uh, so we also have to work outside those checklists because not everything is in a QRH, in a checklist, et cetera. Correct? Well, can I... I was just going to piggyback off what we were kind of talking about earlier. Um, the crew and all of that, at least in my experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the overseas you tend to have the inexperience that we talked about, but you also, when that captain upgrades, a lot of people, I think, think they have a lot of experience they're new to the left seat. And a lot of times the person sitting next to them is also very inexperienced. And that's something that a lot of times the public or even people who are in aviation that haven't gone to the airlines yet don't realize is that generally an inexperienced captain is with an inexperienced first officer. And that can create CRM issues as well. And then what you were talking about, Carl, with the QRHs and all that kind of stuff, um, the quick reference handbooks, which is our emergency checklist, if you will, those, a lot of being able to understand those and read them and, and, and be confident with running them comes from experience as well. I mean, when I teach at the 121 level, we spend a lot of time just working through the QRHs and making sure our crews have an understanding of that. But if there's not a good foundation there, reading a QRH is not as easy as opening your Wall Street Journal and (laughs) reading from top to bottom. It it can be very uh, difficult if you don't have the experience to kind of interpolate what the QRH is trying to do for you. Well, not just just that, but... uh yeah, it's it's a really great point because you're you're it's an interfacing issue too, right? You're reading this quick reference handbook or uh, quick reference checklist or whatever, and if it's not an efficient way to read it, uh, that can also create some issues. So, uh, for instance, on uh, both of these examples, uh, the both the Lion Air and Ethiopian QRHs, um, when they were going into this kind of a rabbit hole about the airspeed disagree. Uh, in order, basically what they both direct you to do is fly a power setting and a pitch attitude. You know that if you're at about 70% power and you are a little bit nose up, three or four degrees nose up, you know the airplane's going to fly and it's going to fly about 200 knots, let's call it. Well, from a from a from an interfacing and an ergonomic standpoint, you would think that those power settings and air speeds and pitch settings would be on the same page or at least right near, but you actually have to go to an entirely different section in that manual. When you have stick shakers going off and, you know, the airplane's fighting you and CRM issues going on, you don't necessarily think the other guy uh, has your back reading these checklists, flipping through a multi hundred page manual to a different chapter might not necessarily seem like you're, uh, doing the right thing and you might just abandon it, which is essentially what they did in a couple cases. So, And going back to your point, uh, Justin, as far as training is concerned and experience, more so experience, one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that 
because of the shortages we've had lately in the airlines, we have many people that have 8,000 hours, 10,000 hours that have zero pilot and command time in a jet or in an airline environment. And uh, and that's going to change. But it used to be that you had at least like 1,000 hours as a captain, which kind of helped this process along where we had a lot more experienced captains. We're getting back to that again, obviously, because there's no pilot shortage right now. Uh, so there's good and bad things about that scenario. But I think, and we may get in this in the next episode, talking about you know how do we prepare our captains uh, to have that type of experience. And it goes back to I think what you said before, Ben, is that you know you can only interpret things just for a few hours as to the abilities of the person that's coming to the simulator. Uh, maybe there's something more we can do, and we'll we'll get to that later. So that's kind of a precursor to that whole discussion. Um, but going back to the checklists and the issues there, I think uh, we've pretty much talked about all the ones there, unless I'm forgetting something, Ben. Uh, go ahead. Can I, I was going to – sorry. Go ahead. Um, the uh, checklist issue, I was also wanted to point out what Ben was talking about, what you were kind of hinting to, and Ben was speaking of with the instability of the aircraft and the ability to run the checklist. And I, I only wanted to comment on that for our listeners um, new pilots out there, aviation enthusiasts, people that are flying all the time, we tend to focus a lot and train a lot on checklist usage. You know, a good private pilot instructor should be teaching their student how to use a checklist appropriately. We focus very much on checklists and our technology, our EFBs and everything else. But we're really going back to this as an airline. And you spoke about it when you said flying a known pitch and power. And that's what we're training right now at the airline level is turning everything off and flying pitch and power. And if I could give anything to our listeners from my experience and what I'm seeing, go back to that. When you're out flying your airplane, turn off the automation. Fly around a little bit. Learn how your airplane feels because at the end of the day, when the airplane is trimmed and out of trim and so unstable because you've got a pitch trim runaway in your Cirrus or whatever it is, you need to know how to fly the plane almost more so than you need to know how to run the checklist. Because if you can't fly the airplane, the checklist does you no good. Not saying the checklist is not important. So I just want to point that out for our listeners as go get back to flying your airplane. Turn off the EFB, turn off the iPad, turn off some of the autopilot stuff and just fly your airplane around and get a feel for it. Well, I think that's a a great segue into the next section about what we're actually doing to fix this. Um, You know, and, and just one quick point on that, too. You know, I'm seeing a lot more private pilot students who are trying to be instrument students. Uh, you know, they have all this fun glass in front of them. And when you tell them to do the steep turn, they're sitting there trying to maintain within zero feet of deviation because they have trend vectors and all this stuff on the, on the glass that does so much for you. Uh, rather than, I remember when I did my private pilot, uh, which was not a hundred years ago, but I was told to look outside, you know, find a nut on the, uh, the cowling uh, or screw on the cowling and maintain about that for 45 degrees and, uh, you know, basically fly it by feel. And there's something to be said for that. It's not everything, of course, but being able to do some manual flying is important. 
but you know nowadays they don't have nuts on there ben anymore they it's all composites but yeah, we yeah, won't talk yeah. about how long ago you flew <laughs> look, look <laughs> for a ripple in the in the composite <laughs> uh but just a little tease there uh so let's talk a little bit about what we can do to fix this before we get into our next episode where do we go from here how does how does uh boeing and how do we as a pilot uh, group fix this problem well, you know, for all the, the media and public scrutiny that's gone into this, it's, uh, yeah, I will, I will say this, the, the fixes aren't public yet. I mean, they're, they're in the final stages of certifying, recertifying the airplane, uh, the training programs to be uh, coming from this and uh, fixing the problem in general. But um, for all the scrutiny and public interest in this, the fixes are pretty much going to be fairly simple. Um, you know, we'll talk about the crew issues a little first, just since we were just talking about those, um, you know, there is going to be some simulator training for, for from everything that uh, we've been hearing. Uh, and I think most people have heard that one of the big emphasis is uh, or emphases on this is going to be hand flying the airplane actually, uh, and not hand flying during MCAS, although I'm sure that'll be a part of it too, but just simply hand flying the airplane, doing a normal departure and, uh, you know, flying it without the autopilot and auto throttles and all these things that we have to make our life easier right now. And those, those are mainly the crew factors, you know, do, doing those yeah. type of things. And um, anything else as far as, and this is something I struggle with is, how how do we go about more scrutiny from the FA? Because you hear that a lot. I personally feel integrity is incredibly important, and no matter what you do, so that's something that that isn't quite that definitive. But it uh, it's hard to quantify that. But it really is important from a manufacturing standpoint. But uh, with that said, you can't have a hundred percent. Uh, scrutiny on everything uh, from the FAA. I mean, they're not going to be next to you all day long. So a lot, it goes back to the manufacturer and goes back to the integrity of the pilots. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we've seen, um, yeah, I really want to talk about this issue a lot in the next episode, but uh, you know, we have seen this scru increased scrutiny uh, because of the public interest in the FAA uh, oversight issues. Um, I, I think shining some sunlight on, issues does actually do a lot to uh, keep people honest and to to sort of recalibrate people's uh, focuses and priorities. Um, there are some bills going through Congress uh, talking about increased oversight and maybe pulling some of that certification responsibility from uh, the manufacturers. Um, but honestly, I, I think that sunlight is the best cure in this, uh, in this circumstance. So well, I think it's, it, I think it also goes back to what you shine the light on. I, I do. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of education. It's part of the reason I enjoy doing the podcast with Carl so much is more we can educate and shine light on things like ham flying and the importance of it when you're out there on your airplane. Uh, the, I think how we shine the light and who's shining the light because you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people. It starts at the private pilot level, right? So I think if the NTSB and the FAA and these people start going to their DPEs or designated pilot examiners and those people start going to the CFIs and they start saying, listen, we're going to start turning stuff off during the check rides. And we want your guys to really understand how to fly the airplane. 
we're going to start focusing less on the automation. That would put that foundation of, oh, wow. Okay. So I am, you know, I do need to maybe look outside a little more, whatever it is from the get go, from the private pilot moving on up that they would carry that through their career, right? Law of primacy. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think this pretty clearly shows that this comes from an, a primary training perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of these issues started when uh, these pilots had 200, 300, 100, whatever hours. And, uh, you know, I really do think that that primacy does do a lot in terms of the pilot training issue and in terms of the pilot mentality issue. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the FAA debate going on about the uh, oversight, uh, I, I think what this really highlights too um, is this sort of over-reliance on technology from a federal standpoint and from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, you know, basically this was a problem that was discovered a flight characteristic. You know, this is going back all the way to episode one, uh, you know, flight control characteristic that they said, oh, we'll throw a computer on it and it'll figure it out. And uh, not enough foresight uh, or not enough uh, due diligence was really performed in trying to figure out, hey, what's going, what, what could happen with this? And, you know, that, that goes into some of the uh, into some of the physical fixes uh, and engineering fixes that are going to uh, happen, which again are fairly simple if you think about it. Um, you know, it should have been, I would think it should have been kind of obvious. Uh, I know we're not really supposed to use the word obvious in aviation, but, uh, you know, you want more than one input. You don't want a single point of failure. Uh, so one of the fixes, they're going to have multiple input requirements for the MCAS. Another uh, thing is, hey, if, if, if a system is broken, you want to try to isolate that system a little bit. Well, that's one of the things that they're going to do uh, from what we've heard is they're going to limit the number of times that this uh, MCAS system is allowed to activate during a flight. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, Even if you have multiple points of failure, though, as redundancy, it still is a factor that they can fail. I mean, I had recently had a non-normal situation in the jet, you know, where there was an expected result because there was a fail-safe system when the system failed. So the system failed, and then guess what? The fail-safe system failed, and I was in a situation where it, it, what I thought was supposed to happen didn't happen. And... At 38,000 feet, I had one option initially, and that was literally to turn off the automation and fly the airplane. I had no other choice. And so that's great, but it still goes back to the training and everything else, which the airlines are doing a really good job of, by the way. Everybody understands. They have really oh, bought sure, yeah. into this idea of hand flying and turning stuff off and doing all that. Yeah, and I yeah, think... And Sorry, go ahead, Carl. I was going to say one more reason I think that's happening is we're starting. I think that starts also from the level, even on a federal level, uh, is that we, I remember talking to this one guy I used to fly with. He's a World War II pilot and he worked for the FAA. And he said, you know, most of our jobs now are 90% 
paperwork and you know 10% flying it's probably less than that now uh, maybe we need to go back to that you know 90% flying in other words it, it, we don't need to sample everybody we have to have a good sample though and from that meaning that we can actually go out and and touch and feel and and have experiences with other pilots and and then that it, person that's at the FAA can actually glean information and bring it back and make suggestions. I don't think that's happening quite as much. And, and I think that might be one of the resolutions to this is to have them a little bit more involved in that process. Uh, and in that, in saying that you probably would have seen more people doing some more hand flying. I feel uh, just yeah. have a lot more old school in, the, in there. Well, I think the paperwork issue is an interesting one as well, because, you know, we saw this issue with the subcontracting uh, out, maintenance procedures and et cetera, et cetera. At a certain point when you get multiple maintenance procedures back, you can get multiple from, from different companies with different formatting and different mindsets and different cultures. I, I think at a certain point you're, you're filling out thousands of pages of paperwork and it's hard to, it's hard to find issues um, when you're dealing with such disparate cultures. Uh, that's for sure. That's Corporate for sure. Cultures. I mean, very, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, one of the things I do want to stress, though, is the fact that uh, there there is multiple fixes to this. In other words, we're going to find more problems as we fix, and and that's what we need to do. It's a constant iteration of learning and making things better, and that's true with everything. I mean, we don't see airplanes just come off the shelf and work perfectly, right? We constantly are, are making. Don't fly better. the A model of anything. <laughs> you know, it's 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 really interesting that you mentioned that because I was going to say something about this when uh, when Justin was talking about the the unknown failure and the the, the you know you can add redundancy here and there and all everywhere but uh you know another th interesting thing that sort of happened over the last two years every time anything happens with the max uh you know wiring bundles were installed sideways or whatever uh you know minor certification issues uh that happen with every single airplane that comes out these are airplanes with millions and millions of parts and you know millions and millions of different teams working on things you're gonna find issues um and you know that goes back to what i was saying about the multiple inputs and redundancy and things like that things will break on airplanes and things will break uh or or, or we'll find a better way of designing something on an airplane um so those those minor issues that didn't necessarily concern me when I saw them. It does really point though at the fact that, Hey, if there's more redundancy built in at the offset, then when you do come over these minor issues at during the first few years after aircraft certification, you have more of a safety net to catch you and to catch uh, the unknown situation. So boy, I tell you, there's a lot of issues involved here. We talked about, you know, crew issues, checklists, you know, different fixes that we can come up with and uh, for many different levels of certification training, uh, certification both from the pilots and also from the aircraft perspective. But we've we've talked about a lot here. So Ben, uh, kind of sum up what we've done here and also what are we going to do next in our next episode? Well, uh, you know, I think, as with any accident, we've sort of seen that it's not just one thing. You know, there were crew issues, there were maintenance issues, there were uh, certification issues, there were manufacturing issues. And um, that's always going to be the case, of course. Uh, so so what do you do about it? What have we learned from this in general? Um, and I think that's uh, going to be a great discussion for our next podcast is – 
you know, what do we do with all this information? Um, you know, what, what are the manufacturers trying to do? Uh, what is the FAA from a regulatory standpoint trying to do to, to prevent some of these things? Uh, one way is try to eliminate uh, factors that could go wrong, uh, but it's not quite as simple as that, uh, as we've seen. So, you know, it takes, takes a village to make anything work properly and taking out the problem people uh, or problem areas doesn't necessarily always fix things. Very well said, and actually, we're going to kind of wrap up on that point. Us, Justin, you have something else to to say, and uh, and uh, so we can wrap here. Um, this has been great, great analysis, and some great background information for those that are interested in the seven thirty seven Max, but more so those that are interested in aviation and how to improve themselves, and also how we can improve upon the aviation world in general. For many people that are listening that aren't actually pilots, but are interested in how to help solve this problem, yeah, you can get involved to uh, be engaged, be engaged in media, be engaged with uh, those that are uh, creating the laws, et cetera. And, and, you know, everybody has, has input right through our votes. So not to get political, obviously, but uh, we do need to be engaged as citizens, even if we're not uh, somebody that has this uh, 737 max in our background or ever see it again. Look at us. We're there's a general aviation podcast. This does affect us. What we learn from this affects us as pilots, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the next episode. So I can't wait, uh, Justin, and also Ben. Thanks so much for coming. I uh, can't wait to talk to you guys next episode. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks again. Really enjoyed it. Well, folks, hopefully you've uh, enjoyed listening to this podcast and you've gleaned some great information from this. We're going to do a lot more in the next show, talk a little bit more about what we can do, what we've learned, how we can go forward, and how this is going to affect you as a pilot or any in any level of aviation. Uh, we're going to take it to you, and we're going to we'd love to hear your comments also. Uh, contact at stuckmikeavcast.com or just go to stuckmikeavcast.com, click on the contact page. We'd love to hear from you both on our Facebook and our Twitter account. Uh, anywhere you want to reach out to us. Well, folks, fly safe, and uh, we can't wait to talk to you in the next episode. Do a little bit of research before the next episode. Go back, listen to some of those other ones, and and think about your own flying life. Well, you know, what can you learn from this, and what can you learn from what we've talked about? We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.